tonight, as we open our uh, our new series, uh, evening series on prayer tonight, I'm going to be talking about praying like a child, praying like a child, and uh, as we begin to talk about praying like a child, let's pray like some children again. Lord, we just come to you again, asking for grace and help, Lord. We pray that as your disciples prayed, Lord, undoubtedly, after seeing your life of prayer, they come and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Surely they saw something, Lord, that the source, as it were, of your power and strength was your life of prayer. And so with them, Lord, we join in our plea, saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Make us into a praying people, a praying church. A church, Lord, whose who's very breath, Lord, is prayer, whose lifeline is prayer, that, that we would, as Paul commanded us, pray without ceasing, that we would be in continual conversation, Lord, with you as our Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what does it mean that God is our Father? What does that mean? You know, thinking of God as our Father, uh, for many people is, who, are, who are at least nominally religious, they, they pretty much take it for granted. You know, of course, yeah, God's kind of like our Father, but... Many people today uh, in that camp, when they think of God as their father, what they really think of God as is more like, uh, I hate to put it this way, but more like a senile grandfather. That is, someone who, you know, doesn't quite know what's going on all the time and just smiles and nods at everything you do. And just... When you tell them so-and-so, and I did this, and I'm doing this, they just laugh and say, oh, great. God's not like that. But God is a father to his people. We can easily take the fatherhood of God for granted, but you may be surprised to know that in the Old Testament, references to God as father are extremely rare. In fact, apart from examples where God is compared in some situation to, or another to an earthly father, the word father used as a descriptor of God as the father of his people only happens 15 times in the entire Old Testament. And only two of those is it used as a direct address to God in prayer in the entire Old Testament. But in the four Gospels, Of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just in the four Gospels of the New Testament, there are well over a hundred examples of Jesus referring directly to God as his Father and as the Father of his disciples. Jesus understood that he was changing the way people relate to God. And you know, we have good evidence, we have very strong evidence that that Jesus, I mean, he teaches us to, but Jesus called God 
father in prayer. And when he did so, he almost certainly used the word Abba. The word Abba occurs three times in the Greek New Testament, which is fascinating because Abba is not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. So the three times that Abba occurs in the New Testament, it is what's called a transliteration. That is that the, the, Greek, the people writing in Greek chose not to translate it into the Greek word for father, which would be Petros, but they actually wrote the Aramaic word using, Hebrew, using Greek letters. They just kept the, the Aramaic sounds, but they wrote it in Greek letters. But it's the Aramaic word, Abba. Why, would, if, there, if Abba's Aramaic, but they're writing in Greek, why would they not translate it? Why would they just leave it as Abba? I think the best explanation is this, is that the term Abba among the earliest Christians who were Jews who spoke Aramaic, the, the title, the, the word, the referring, uh, referring to God as Abba probably became so common, it almost became like a personal name for God. And you don't, you don't translate personal names. You just, you, just, you just say them. In other words, the practice that Jesus uh, had of calling God his Abba was so revolutionary, but yet so common that it became embedded in the life of the early church. And this is incredible because Abba was a, what we would call a common term, a familiar, a familial term. It would be something like dad or dear father or daddy. It was addressing God as if you would your very own earthly father whom you loved. And most Jews would not do this because they viewed it as irreverent. But this is Jesus' preferred way to refer to God as his Abba, as his Father. That is Jesus as the Son of God, came to change forever the way others relate to God. That is, in Christ, and that's what we've, we've been talking about in Galatians. In Christ, hear me now, we become children of God to the same degree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As much as God the Father is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, so in Christ, to the same degree, God is our Father. As much access as Jesus Christ himself has directly to God as his Father, we have the same access to him through Christ. And that changes the way you pray. It changes the way you pray. Because God is our Father, it changes the way we pray. Matthew 6, verse 6. When you pray, go into your room. Shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. Matthew 6, 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what I want to talk about tonight is praying like a child. You know, not only in the New Testament is a God, does God become our Father through Jesus Christ, but Jesus, in numerous places in the New Testament, Jesus encourages us not just to call God our Father, but Jesus encourages us to become like children. Have you ever thought about that? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In other words, children come to their fathers and they will ask, and and human fathers who are sinful give good things to their children. Jesus says, you need to be like a child to your father. And you come and you ask him, and he'll give good things to you, better things. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. If you don't come to God as a child... You can't be saved. Doesn't mean that you have to have the intellect of a child. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you have to come to God humbly, like a child. You have to come to God humbly, like a child looks to a parent in faith. That the parent is for them and wants the best for them and is leading them and guiding them and directing them and commanding them for their good. You come humbly like a child. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, they wanted to be great. Jesus said, you want to be great? Be a child. Then you'll be great. Be humble. Be a, no, be a nobody for me. Then you'll be great. Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We are the children of God. So, when we think about prayer, I want us to think about this analogy. And I think we can learn some about prayer from 
children. Uh, and then he talks about it in, in, in the book as well. How children come. How do children come to their parents asking for things? Number one, they come without pretense. Children, um, they will come and they will just, they will tell you what is on their mind. And they will do so in public to the great embarrassment of their parents. They are not trying to impress anybody. <laughs> they are not putting on masks. They are just letting you know exactly what they think. They come without pretense. Sometimes we feel, for whatever reason, that we have to be over-spiritual or formal in our prayers. Now, some people just pray more formally than others. That's not necessarily a bad thing if that is what you're used to. But... Sometimes, especially for a new believer, let's say they did not grow up in church, and they come to church, and they hear people, and they they talk normally in everyday life, but when they pray, they use, you know, King James English. Well, nothing's wrong with that, but it can sometimes confuse the new Christian because it makes them think, well, when I pray, I have to be somebody different than I am. But that's not how God, of course, wants us to come. We're to come to God without pretense. Little children come to their parents messy. You know, when th- learning to pray, for example, is kind of like learning to walk. If you're a father and you have a child, a son, for example, and they're learning to walk, and your child begins to take those first wobbly steps, the child takes their first steps. If you're a father, you don't say, son, Son, we got to get you in the weight room and get you under the squat rack because your, 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 your quad strength is bad, your hamstring, you, you need more, your, your form is all wrong. You don't say that. When your child takes your first step, you say, wow, wow, look at what just happened. He walk, he's walking. God's your father. You don't have to run in prayer. You can wobble. You can stumble. You can fall. You can come to God messy. You know what he's going to do? He's going to cheer. He's going to jump up and down. Why? Because you're his child. We can come to God with our wobbly, two left feet, knobbly need prayers. And God will hear us. Just say, what, just say what's on your heart. Read Read the Psalms. Read the prophets. Habakkuk, for example, and other prophets, they tell God, they say, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. God's a big boy. He can handle it. Talk to him. Come without pretense. It's foolish to come with God with pretense because he sees your heart with better clarity than you do. Don't put on a mask before the Lord. Come, pray, tell them what's on your heart. Jesus didn't say, come all to me. Come to me all who are learned with minds that never wander and I will give you rest. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to God without pretense. And number two, how do children ask? They ask for anything. 
Shortly after Easter, Hudson woke up, got out of bed, comes into the dining room, and what he wants for breakfast is a chocolate bunny. (laughs) Can I have a chocolate bunny? No, you can't have a chocolate bunny for breakfast. But why would Hudson ask for a chocolate bunny? Because he thinks if he asks, you just might get it. You see, children are willing to ask for things that, according to normal wisdom and convention, are totally unreasonable and absurd. But guess what? They just have enough love, if you will, and innocence and and trust in the goodness and kindness and, yes, mercy at times and graciousness of the parent that, who knows, if I ask, God just may give it. They just may give it. I think God wants us to be like that. I think God wants us to be so pure and so innocent and so confident in his love for us that sometimes we'll just ask things that who knows that God may answer. And sometimes he will. Bold, childlike faith and sincerity. See, the problem is, is that old people get cynical. As we get older... We get cynical. The more of the world that we see, the more hardships that we face in life, we lose our awe and wonder at God. We lose that sense of innocence, that sense of childlike faith. We get cynical. We say, what's the point? What's it going to matter? How is it going to help? Next week, I'm going to talk about that. But children, children just look to their father and they say, can I have a chocolate bunny? You know, there are, as far as I can tell, there are only two examples of, of people in Jesus' day that actually, in response to Jesus, showed a childlike faith. During Jesus' ministry, and you know what? Both of them were Gentiles. There was the centurion who had the sick servant, and he told Jesus, you don't even have to come here. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. And Jesus was amazed. Why? Because the servant, the, the, the Gentile believed. And the second was the Canaanite woman begging, pleading, that God would heal her daughter. <clears throat> and Jesus said, I came for, I came for the, the lost sheep of Israel. And the, the woman had the humility to say, even dogs eat the crumbs off the table. And Jesus said, oh, woman, great is your faith. And he healed her daughter. Childlike faith. If I, if I can just get to him and just ask, he'll answer. The last way children come is they, can, they come babbling and struggling for words. Half the time when my children try to explain something to me, it takes like five minutes They talk and talk and talk, and at the end of it, I have no idea what they just tried to say. Not not a clue. They're just trying to get it out. 
They, they, they know what they want to say. They have no idea how to say it. Or sometimes they're hurt. A child, they're, hurt, they're hurting. They're hurting, but they have no idea to explain to you how they hurt. They just hurt. Most of the greatest prayers you'll probably pray in your life are the ones you can't even put into words. Sometimes you can't even express yourself. But you look up to heaven and you know and you are crying out to God in your heart and you can't put it into words. But let me tell you something. He hears you. He hears you. Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for you. So we come to God like a child, without pretense, asking for anything, even struggling in our words. That's how God wants us to come. The next thing I want to talk about this evening is how we can learn to pray from Jesus. So we're learning to pray like a child. Jesus, of course, is the Son of God. He is the child of God from whom we can learn how to pray. The first and I think the most important thing we can learn from Jesus himself about how to pray is this. Jesus lived in utter dependency on the Father. Jesus lived in utter dependency on the Father. Let me read you these verses, and I want you to think about them. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. But only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 5.30 I can do nothing on my own. John 8.28 Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do Nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John twelve forty nine. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ did not say a single word. Apart from what the Father told him to say. Jesus Christ did not do a single work without doing what the Father told him to do. Now I want you to think about this because the first time I really understood this, it just blew my mind. If there was anybody 
who could come into the world and act in the, and act in his own authority. It was Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, literally did nothing without being utterly dependent on the Father. If Jesus Christ lived in utter dependency on the Father in everything he did, shouldn't you? You see? Sometimes, sometimes we think, you know, oh, well, you know, Jesus, he was God's son, and so, you know, and he's God, he did all these things, and, you know, that's totally, you know, that's, you know, we, you can't really expect to do things like that. But we forget that Jesus, in his incarnation, Jesus did not use his divinity to cheat on his humanity. In other words, now think about this, because you've got to understand this. When Jesus acted, he, he did not act from his own power and authority as God, though he could have. He did not do that. He became flesh, and he lived as fully as a human being would. The only difference was that he was utterly dependent on the Father, and we're not. But do you see? He did not ever act out of his own power. He always acted out of his dependency on the Father and of dependency on the Holy Spirit of God. What does that mean? It means the, the same Spirit that dwells in you dwells, dwelt in Jesus Christ. That means that you, by dependency on the Father can have the same access, the same power that he did. In the book, Paul Miller writes this. It says, when Jesus tells us that apart from me you can do nothing, John 15, 51, he is inviting us into his life of a living dependence on his heavenly Father. When Jesus tells us to believe He isn't asking us to work up some spiritual energy. He is telling us to realize that, like him, we don't have the resources to do life. When you know that you, like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then prayer makes complete sense. But it goes even deeper than that. Jesus defines himself only in relationship with his heavenly Father. Adam and Eve began their quest for self-identity after the fall. Only after they acted independently of God did they have a sense of a separate self. Because Jesus has no sense of a separate self, he has no identity crisis, no angst. Consequently, Jesus does not try to find himself. He knows himself only in relationship with his father. He cannot conceive of himself outside of that relationship. You see, sometimes God has to show us 
what should be painfully obvious, and that is we are not in control. And when you learn the lesson you're not in control, prayer is the air you breathe. Because if you're not in control, but you have direct access to someone who is, how would you not talk to him about it? Unless, of course, you think you're in control. Then you won't pray. Prayer, and I think this is the best quote I've read in the book so far. He says, prayer is bringing your helplessness to Jesus. You will pray in direct proportion, that, in, in direct proportion to the degree that you believe you are helpless. And the irony of all ironies that the person who lived with the greatest helplessness and most dependency on earth was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul Miller again writes this, Little children are good at helplessness. It's what they do best. But as adults, we soon forget how important helplessness is. I, for one, am allergic to helplessness. I don't like it. I want a plan, an idea, maybe a friend to listen to my problem. This is how I instinctively approach everything because I am confident in my own abilities. This is even true in my work of teaching people about prayer. Even though I lead prayer seminars and wrote a study on prayer, up until a year ago, it never occurred to me to pray systematically and regularly for our prayer ministry. Why not? Because I was not helpless. I could manage our prayer ministry on my own. I never said this or even thought it, but I lived it. Ironically, helplessness is one of the central themes in our prayer seminar. I wasn't helpless about the ministry of teaching helplessness. Such is the human heart. I only started praying regularly about our seminar ministry when it wasn't moving forward. When I became helpless. You see, oftentimes God will bring things into our lives to show us our helplessness. He will bring circumstances beyond our control and Sometimes those circumstances can make God feel distant. But what if those circumstances that in our sin we are tempted to withdraw from God, what if it's those very circumstances that God are trying to use in order to show you your helplessness so that you will draw near to him? What if... Your anxiety and your fear and your worry and depression, what if it did not consume your mind and and distract you from God, but what if it became a flashing signal in your head, beeping, alarming, blaring in your ear, saying, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. You see, fear, anxiety, worry, and depression come when we focus on our helplessness. 
But peace comes when we focus on God's power. Prayer is turning your heart from one to the other. Prayer is the turning of your heart from focusing on your helplessness to focusing on God's power. Because it's, it is taking your helplessness and laying it at the feet of Jesus Christ. Who stands at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And there you find peace for your soul. So Jesus lived in utter dependency on God. And so should we. And number two, the second thing we can learn from the life of Jesus in his prayer is this. Jesus got alone with God. Again, Matthew 6, 6. He taught, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Matthew 14, 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Luke 6, 12, and these days he went out on the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Why is it important to get alone with God? Because remember, God is our Father. It is a relationship. God is a person, persons. And in any intimate relationship, time alone together with God is essential because it gives you time to focus on one another. Otherwise, you'll be distracted. It it removes yourself from distraction in order to focus on Him. If we want to grow in our prayer life, we have to learn to get alone with God. You'll say, Pastor, I'm busy. You ain't busier than Jesus was. Believe me. Jesus got alone with God. You see, being alone with someone is automatically intimate. It is. You ever been hanging around in a crowd, and then all of a sudden everybody kind of moves, and you're just standing there by someone else you don't know? It's like, oh, you know, it's kind of awkward. Being alone is, is automatically intimate. And here's the thing. I think this is what keeps a lot of people from praying. Hear me now. Because, being, because prayer is an exercise. <clears throat> individual prayer, private prayer, of course, is an exercise in being alone with God. And I think a lot of don't, people don't pray because private prayer for them is like sitting across the table from a stranger. someone put you in a room with someone you didn't know and sat them across the table and say, okay, guys, have fun, you would feel awkward. Some people feel like that with God. They can't pray because he's a stranger to them. But hear me now. It's hard to talk with somebody I don't know, but sit someone across the table from me who has been with me in my hardest battles in life. Who has been with me in my greatest joys. Who has been with me in the secret places. You can talk about anything. 
you have the relationship. Well, you say, Pastor, God does feel like a stranger to me. How can I get more intimate relationship with God? Well, how do you get to know anybody? Start talking and start listening. You have to begin somewhere. You don't get to know somebody overnight. It takes time. It takes investment. It takes intentionality. Look, it's not, it's not rocket science. You got to begin somewhere. So, finally, what are some practical tips that you can help in your prayer life? Tip number one, make time to be alone with God. Why do I say make time? Because you won't find time. You got to make it. None of us can find time for stuff that we're not already doing. You have to make time. You have to be intentional. And again, remember, it's a relationship. When you were a teenager, bless your soul, and your hormones were raging... And you had a crush on Susie Q across the class. No one had to make you try to find time to be alone with Susie Q. You made time. Why? Because you wanted to know her. You wanted to know him. Make time. Number two... Confess sin. Maybe, hear me now, this, if you have sinned against someone, the last thing you want to do is run into them at Walmart and have to talk to them. Am I lying? If there is sin in your life, of course you're not going to want to talk to God. Of course. But what do you do? How can you restore the relationship? If someone's important to you, of course you're going to want to heal the relationship. You're not going to want to be estranged for them forever. Although, unfortunately, oftentimes that happens. But you got to take the initiative and you have to confess your sin. If you've wronged somebody, how can you restore that relationship so that you can speak freely in a good relationship to one another? You have to go and confess that wrong and say, will you forgive me? And my goodness, that changes everything. It changes everything. Now the next time you see that person, you speed up to them and say, hey, how's it going? Because your relationship has been healed. Confess your sin. And if you sinned against someone else, that sin is not just against them. And of course, it's against God too. So you got to, Jesus said, if you, have an, if you have a gift to offer to God and you remember someone has something against you, leave it and go make it right before you come talk to me. Peter says, if you don't love your wife well, men, God won't hear your prayers. You want God to hear your prayers. 
confess, ask for forgiveness, and God will heal you. Next, start your day with prayer. This is just practical, and there may be some exceptions to this rule where, you know, you, have, you can pray better or, or make time better later. But I think as a general rule, I think most people are like me. That is, if I don't do it first thing, it's not going to happen. So, I strongly encourage you, start your day with prayer. Start your day with time in the Word and time in prayer. Start your day with the Lord. This is, it's, it, it's so crucial because, again, if you don't do it at the beginning, it probably won't happen. And I think there's biblical example. Jesus prayed early in the morning. If you read the Psalms, there's all kinds of Psalms where the psalmist talks about how I praise God early in the morning. I prepared my sacrifice in the morning and I watched. Start your day with prayer. Get up. And if you have a busy life, you have kids. It is hard to be alone with God. And therefore, the only time you may ever have to be alone with God is if you just get up before everybody else does. I'm telling you. I, I had to learn this as a, as a young man and then having kids. <laughs> if the kids are up, you just, you're not going to be able to do anything, okay? Just believe me. You got to beat them. You got to beat them up. Awake, that is, not physically, okay? <laughs> Got to wake up first. Start your day with prayer. Get up. Wake up. Make it, make it a habit. Yes, it's hard. Oh, I'm not a morning person. Well, make yourself a morning person for Susie Q. You would do it for Susie Q. Do it for the Lord. Wake up. I have to trick myself. You take your alarm, take your phone, set it to the most annoying sound you could possibly imagine, and put it across the room. You'll get out of bed. If, it, if, if you don't, turn it up louder until you get out of bed. Put it across the room. I'm telling you, because if you don't put it across the room, you're going to hit snooze. I'm telling you. Trick yourself. Be practical. Make yourself get up. If the doctor said you have to take this medicine every day or you'll die, you won't forget to take it. I'm telling you. Wake up. I heard a story one time about a guy. I don't, he had to get up extreme, extremely early. Because I guess, uh, I think it was kids or some people in his house. If he wanted to be alone with God, it wouldn't happen unless he beat everybody up. So he got up at four in the morning. And people say, well, and people, somebody asked him one time, and said, well, how in the world do you get up at four in the morning? Well, he says, because I go to bed at like 830 at night. Well, they said, well, how do you go to bed at eight? How do you go to sleep at 830 at night? Well, because I got up at four in the morning. <laughs> it's not rocket science, folks. It's really not. What good are you doing after 9, 10 o'clock at night anyways? Get up and be with the Lord. 
get up, get get out, get to bed, and then get up out of the bed, get awake, get your little habit. I like coffee. We make I make coffee first thing I do every morning. I I create at night. You can ask my wife. I create a path of least resistance to the coffee. I'm serious. We, I mean, I, I probably could make it easier, but we use a French press, and, you know, it's one of our little nice things we like to enjoy. We got whole bean coffee. I got a coffee grinder. I take everything out of the cabinets. I set it on the counter. I get it all arranged exactly how I do it. Path of least resistance. Wake up, and, and there's some accountability. Meg's asleep in the room, so I got my, my phone across the, the room. So I don't want the alarm to wake her up, so, I, I, so it, it makes me get up quicker and go and turn it off. Then I get up and I, I go into the kitchen, I make my coffee, I open my Bible. And I listen to God, and I talk to Him, and you can too. Get in a comfortable place. Find a quiet place in your house. Get comfortable, but not too comfortable. If you think, if you, think you can pray laying down on your pillow, it's not going to happen, folks. Get up. Get in a prayerful, worshipful posture if you have to. But pray. Read the Bible. Pray. Read the Scriptures Pray. But if you don't know what to pray about, pray through the scriptures. Pray for the people. Make lists. And that, that's, that's, that's next on the list. Keep, get going and keep going in your prayer. Yeah, it's going to be hard. But look, if you do it over time, I'm telling you, it becomes a habit. And your habits shape you. You see? Your habits shape you. So you want to create the best habits that you can. Get alone with the Lord. Make lists. There are all different ways to do this. You could probably Google search it. But you could, you could have a list that you pray for every day. You could make certain lists. I know people who make certain lists that they pray for this, the, this Monday, this Tuesday, this Wednesday, this, this Thursday, and so on. Make lists. Journal. This is actually how I pray personally is I journal. I have a journal. I probably have like this many journals over my lifetime. I don't normally, I don't often write what happened that day unless something was very eventful. It's, it's not necessarily a journal to, you know, outline what happened in my life. It's a prayer journal. I pray to God with my pen. It doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter how you do it. Man, you love Susie Q. <laughs> So what do you do? Do you just talk to her on the phone? Of course not. You write notes to her. You slip her, you slip them in her hand as you're walking by in the hallway. It doesn't matter how you do it. But look, get alone with God and talk to him. Finally, lastly, redeem idle time. Redeem idle time. And this, this gets a little bit to how when Paul says pray without ceasing, how can we be praying all the time? Well, for the Christian, prayer should be like breathing. My wife, bless her heart, she talks to her sister almost constantly. <laughs> Texting on the phone. 
It's like a, it's literally a continual conversation. I asked Meg, "Do you talk? Did you talk to anybody any day?" Well, she says no. But if, but then I say, "Well, did you talk to Macy?" Well, of course, of course, I talked to Macy. It's that continual conversation that you're having. Look, if you have a commute, pray. In fact. Some of the best prayers I've ever had that you will ever have is in your car. Because, look, nobody can hear you. Pray out loud. Call out to God. Cry to him when you're doing chores. God can hear you when you're washing the dishes. God can hear you when you're mowing the grass. No one else can probably hear you, and that's good. Pray. Or when you exercise. Again, some, some of, I think, the best prayers I've had is when I've been just on a run, talking to the Lord. It doesn't matter how you pray, but just pray. Pray like a child to a needy father. It's been, it's been commonly said before, the only, the only person who has the audacity to wake up a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water is a child. And God is your Father. I'll close, I'll close this tonight with a, with a quote on prayer from John Piper. He, he, he writes this. He says, Unless I'm badly mistaken, one of the main reasons so many of God's children don't have a significant life of prayer is not so much that we don't want to, but that we don't plan to. If you want to take a four-week vacation, you don't just get up one summer morning and say, hey, let's go today. You won't have anything ready. You won't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. But that is how many of us treat prayer. We get up day after day and realize that significant times of prayer should be a part of our life, but nothing's ever ready. We don't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. No time, no place, no procedure. All we know is that the opposite of planning, uh, and we all know that the opposite of planning is not a wonderful flow of deep, spontaneous experiences of prayer. The opposite of planning is the rut. If you don't plan a vacation, you'll probably stay home and watch TV. The natural, unplanned flow of spiritual life sinks to the lowest ebb of vitality. There was a race to, want, to run and a fight to be fought. If you want renewal in your life of prayer, you must plan to see it. Therefore, my simple exhortation is this. Let us take time today to rethink our priorities and how prayer fits in. Make a new resolve. Try a new venture with God. Set a time. Set a place. Choose a portion of Scripture to guide you. Don't be tyrannized. By the press of busy days. We all need mid-course corrections. Make this day a day of turning to prayer for the glory of God and for the fullness of your joy. Let me tell you something. You'll never regret knowing God more. You won't regret it. I'm telling you.